be in the book of Romans this morning. If you want to turn there, if you're in a pew Bible this morning, it's page 939. We have looked at the letters to the church churches in Galatia. We've looked at the letters, both first and second letters, that went to the churches in Thessalonica. We have just gotten done looking at the churches that got sent to the to the letter that got sent to the church in Corinth. At least two of the multitudes of letters that Paul sent back and forth to the church in Corinth. And now, now we come to the letter of Romans the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. As you remember, I've said this several times, we in this series, we are attempting, I am attempting to give historical perspective to these letters. Uh, we, have a, we have a knowledge of Paul and his travels and, and his life from our study through the book of Acts that we, that we have not had before and probably will lose as we move into the future. And so we have in this moment, we have a, a, an idea and a picture of what happened historically from the book of Acts that I think helps us to better understand some of these letters. And so uh, we're trying to take this 30,000 foot view of, of the letters so that we can, can see the forest instead of the individual trees. And that's especially hard here with the book of Romans. You, you know, you have heard these stories before, but, but preachers and commentators have a long history of detailed tree studies in the book of Romans rather than an overarching forest view. It's hard to look at the book of Romans and not get into the trees. You know, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, he spent 14 years on the book of Romans. He preached 372 sermons on this book and didn't finish. Pastor John Piper, who many of you who read and know, he spent eight years on the book of Romans, 225 sermons. Many, many pastors and commentators have, have spent years, decades, Working through the book of Romans, untold pages are written on the message of Romans. It's impact and influence lots and lots of church saints. Luther and Calvin, Augustine, all point to Romans as having a major life-changing impact on them. Augustine, in fact, went to write a commentary on the book of Romans and spent so many days writing about verse 1 that he gave up the idea of being able to write a commentary on the book of Romans. Even, even here at Richland, Pastor Ron worked through Romans and spent 81 different messages over the course of almost three years to get through the first half of the book. And I'm going to try to teach you about Romans in maybe three or four weeks. We'll see how it goes. And so we're not going to be able to touch on everything. We're going, to, we're going to try to give a broad overview of it. I want you to see it as a letter. I don't want to get lost in the midst of the arguments in Romans. They're great. We're going to look at them. We're going to look at them in detail. But I want you to see it as a letter. All of these epistles 
are Paul writing a letter. First, in Thessalonians and, and Corinthians and Galatians that we've seen so far, he's been writing to, to churches and to people that he knows. He was in those places. He knew those churches. He founded many of those churches. And he was writing to people he knew. This letter is a different flavor. The letter to the church in Rome is a different book because he has not been to Rome at this point. His travels have not taken him there. He did not plant the church in Rome. Instead, this is a whole different kind of book. And so I want us to have a picture of why did Paul write this, what was he hoping to do, and what was his introduction. That's what we're going to look at today, the introduction here in Rome, in Romans chapter 1. Let's start first, though, with looking at who was the, the church in Rome. You know that Rome was the, the capital of the Roman Empire, the ones who were in charge of the, the, the known part of the world, or much of the known part of the world uh, during Paul's time. They had the largest empire, and this was their capital. And in Acts chapter 2, if you remember back to there, to the Pentecost story, the disciples had, had the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they went out and they began to preach. Peter specifically began to preach and many, over 3,000 that day, came to faith. And in Acts chapter 2, when Luke writes Acts chapter 2, he tells us that there were, in fact, visitors from Rome, he specifically says in Acts chapter 2. We know, we assume, at least, that many of those visitors were part of that 3,000 that came to faith that day. And so those, those believers now, the ones who have come to faith that were visitors from Rome, they've headed back to Rome, and, and most of them, early on, they would have been Jews. They would have gone back to the Jewish synagogues in Rome and began to share about the hope that they have in Jesus. And the church, the early church, would have been started in Rome by some of those that came back from Pentecost. As the church grew, many more Jewish believers would have been a part of the church in, in Rome, but there also would have been a large contingent of Gentiles that would have also been a part of the church in Rome. And then in 49 AD, after the church in Rome had been established, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews out of Rome. There was a disturbance in the city based on Christos, a dispute over Christos, over Christ. And so Claudius, in his response, was to send all of the Jews Believing Jews, unbelieving Jews, all Jews were sent out from the city of Rome. If we even we referenced this as we walked through the book of, of Acts, if you remember, Priscilla and Aquila probably were from Rome. They, they were cast out when Claudius sent them out. And so they ended up coming to Corinth, which is where Paul met them. And Paul became friends and co-workers, tent makers with Priscilla and Aquila. And all of the Jewish believers were cast out of Rome. And that left just the Gentile believers in Rome as a part of the church during that time. Then, five years later, the Jews are allowed to come back to Rome. And so, as they come back, they return to a much different church than the one that they left. A much different church than probably the one that many of them were founders of, had started. The church is now different. Gentile believers 
vastly outnumber the Jewish believers in the church in Rome at this time. The Gentile believers have have been spending these last five years in the church and they are untethered to the Old Testament law like the Jewish believers, many of the Jewish believers would have been. In fact, one commentator would have said that for five years they enjoyed pulled pork and bacon at the church picnics. And now, and now, everything changes. And so there's undoubtedly, there is an unsettledness, there's a disunity in the church in Rome because these Jewish believers are returning to their home, they're returning to the church that they were a part of early on, and the Gentile believers who have been there all along have, have changed much of the church, and, and so now there's, now there's disunity in the midst of it. And Paul knows of this, Paul has not been to Rome, but he has heard of this. In fact, uh, he has connections, Priscilla and Aquila I've already mentioned, but he has other connections to the church in Rome. And so he knows some of this is stirring, and so he wants to write a letter trying to build unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Much of Paul's ministry, much of Paul's ministry is to try to help the Jewish believers and the Gentiles believers to, to build unity together in one corporate church body. And so, Paul writes a letter to Rome. At this point, Paul is is near the end of his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20. You see that Paul, if you remember even as as I walk through the the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul knows that there's been strife in the Corinthian church. And so he has sent a letter to them and, and he is hoping that they respond. He, so he, he wants to go see them, but he takes the long way around. If you remember on his third missionary journey, he, he starts to, to go up all the way through Greece again because he wants his letter to get to the, the Corinthian church. He wants them to respond. And so he's actually waiting. He's waiting for the response from the Corinthian church as he travels around. He gets the response. It's a positive one. They've, they've repented, and they want Paul to come and visit. Um, if you remember, Paul had had some hard visits and, and, a, and, a, and a tear-filled visit. And he doesn't want to do that again. And so he waits. He gets this positive response, and, no, and then he goes to Corinth, and he winters there in Corinth at the end of his, of his third missionary journey there in Acts chapter 20. And while he's there, again, he has some of these influences from the Roman church. Uh, he's staying with a man named Gaius, he says, in, the, in, this, in his letter here in Romans. And he's passing along the letter through, through a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe, in fact, is traveling to Rome. And so he's taking this occasion to write this letter to Rome so that he can hand it to Phoebe so that she can take it on with her. And so he takes this opportunity to spend some time, and, and he knows that this is the end of his, of his third missionary journey, and he's looking to the future. He's thinking about what can he do, where can he go, how can he continue uh, to share the gospel, how can he continue to go and plant churches, and where can he go to do that? And so he says in this letter, he says, I'm hoping to come to you in Rome and then continue on to Spain. He wants to continue on to stretch the borders. He wants to continue on to plant churches. He has this view, this vision to go out and to continue to move farther and farther west. And so he's hoping, I think, even to, to look to this church in Rome, to help the church in Rome, and then to, to land there and to gather support so that he might continue on for another missionary journey. Paul sees all of this. He has great plans. He has a great idea of where he wants to go. But unbeknownst to Paul, 
this appears like this might be the peak of Paul's ministry, the pinnacle of Paul's ministry might be happening right here as he writes this letter to the Romans. It's hard to know. It's hard to know where the peak is, especially when you're in the midst of it. Paul would not, Paul would not have seen this at the moment as the peak of his ministry. But as we look at it, we can see this possibly was the pinnacle, the peak of Paul's ministry. He had, he had traveled through Greece and the Macedonian area. He had established many, many churches throughout that area with several travels around that span. And those churches continue to grow. We, we've even read some of those letters, the Galatians and Thessalonians and, and Corinthian letters. We know that the churches there are growing and are becoming more and more Christ-like and more and more healthy. He's, he's led, Paul has led this charge to collect an offering as he's traveled along through those Gentile churches. He's, he's led the charge to collect an offering for Jewish believers who are suffering in Jerusalem and Judea because of the famine. He's, he's led this charge to collect an offering for them. And, and his whole stated goal is that he wants to build unity. He wants to help those Jewish believers, but he wants to build unity between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. And so he's gathered up this offering to take back to Jerusalem. And now he's sitting for the winter in Corinth in the midst of what had been a super tense standoff between him and one of the churches that he helped to plant. And those believers have repented and come around and welcomed him with open arms and, and they've been reconciled together. And so Paul is, is sitting in Corinth after this tense standoff thinking about the ministry that, that, that God is doing in and through him and the ministry that he's had and and. All of these things are, are on the rise, headed to the high point. In fact, as Paul leaves Corinth after that winter, he's going to travel back to Jerusalem. He has this offering, and he has these people from the churches that are, that are carrying the offering with him. And he's headed back to Jerusalem, but he wants to visit with the leaders from the church in Ephesus, another church that he helped to plant. And he wants to visit with those leaders, but he knows that he is so beloved that if he were actually to enter into Ephesus to visit with the church leaders, he would never be able to get out. There would be so many people that would want to see him. And so he makes arrangements. If you remember back in the book of Acts, he makes arrangements with the, the leaders of the Ephesian church to come out and to meet him outside of the city so that he can share with them some of his final thoughts as he heads off to go back to Jerusalem. He's so beloved that he has to have them come outside of the town to visit with him. So he gives them some quick encouragement and then he heads back to Jerusalem. And things begin to go downhill when he heads back to Jerusalem. That's probably the peak as he leaves Corinth here. He heads back to Jerusalem and he brings the offering that he has collected from all of these Gentile churches and he brings it to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And do you remember what happened? The offering is accepted. They're grateful for it. But then they begin to critique almost immediately. Those early church leaders in Jerusalem begin to critique Paul and his ministry. It's not. The gift that he brings is not appreciated in the way that he had hoped. Unity between the Jews and the Gentiles did not come quickly because of this offering that he brought. It was still slow to arrive and slow to happen. Paul then is arrested while he's there. 
spends much or most of the rest of his life imprisoned and in chains even as he journeys on. Even his ultimate road trip that he was hoping to take to Rome, even that ultimate road trip is under lock and key as a prisoner. His missionary journeys are all but over at this point. He possibly travels a little more when he he gets to Rome. And if you remember from the book of Acts, he gets to Rome and is ultimately released from custody because no one shows up at the trial to come against him. And so he probably travels a bit more at that point, but we know that it's not long after that that he is again arrested and put to death in the city of Rome. It's hard to know where the pinnacle, the peak is of his ministry, but it probably is right here in the city of Corinth as he's writing this letter. And so this book, the book, the letter to the Romans, as he writes here in Corinth, is maybe the peak. And so Paul takes this moment in this Corinth, takes this moment to write this letter to the, to the Romans, and it is his most logical and it's his most well laid out presentation of the gospel of any of his letters. It's a detailed teaching on theology and doctrine. Probably one of the most detailed teachings that we have on theology and doctrine in scripture. And Paul writes it here to the Romans. While Paul knows some of those believers in Rome, this letter is different because he does not have the pictures of of people. He doesn't have their faces in mind as he writes it. They're largely, most of them are, are unknown to Paul. And so, and so his, this letter has a whole different flavor than many of those other letters. This letter, in fact, probably, probably is the teachings and instructions that Paul would have started with when he went to these other churches that he planted. As he showed up in Corinth, many of the teachings that we read and hear in the book of Romans are probably what he began with there when he showed up in Ephesus and began to teach and plant that church. He would have taught these lessons and these teachings when he showed up in Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi. These are the teachings that he would have used, that he would have shared, that he would have shared with the church. And so... What I want to do in these next couple of weeks is just spend some time looking at this letter. What is it that Paul is teaching? And I want us just to look at chapter 1 today. We're just going to spend a few minutes here looking at chapter 1 and trying to look at, at Paul's introduction that he gives of himself and then the thesis statement that I think that Paul gives us here in chapter 1 as well. So chapter 1, starting in verse 1 this morning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with the spirit of the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under no obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live. By faith. We're just going to stop there for today. This introduction, I think, helps us to see Paul's heart for this letter. In fact, I, I would even say that if you just took these first few verses from the book of Romans, from Paul's introduction, you can see his heart for the people of Rome, his heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his hope that they might see. So let's just look at it real quickly. He starts verse 1. Paul, he says, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle even early on here in chapter 1. He reminds them. Remember in in, in 2 Corinthians that we just looked at? Much much of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself, establishing his authority trying to remind the church in Corinth that, that even though he doesn't have the, 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 the letters of the super apostles, that they are his letters. You are the ones who God is working in. And that is the proof of the ministry that I have. So Paul, even here, as he starts his letter to the Romans, he's, he's establishing his apostleship. He's reminding them of his authority, reminding them of the calling that God has given to him. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's always, always reminding believers of the call to holiness, the call to be set apart. Called to be set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. Throughout this letter, throughout the book of the letter to the Romans, the book of Romans, Paul is going to show over and over and over the promise of the Messiah is rooted in the Old Testament. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles and, and Jewish believers who are coming back together to, as the church comes back together, and there's some conflict about the law and about the, the use of the law and the need for the law in the life of the church. And so one of the things that Paul is going to do in this over and over is point, point the Gentiles back to the promises of the Old Testament and say, you know what, these Jewish believers, the, what, what they're remembering, what they're pointing to, what they're reflecting on in the law is true. He's going to point back to the promise of the Messiah that's rooted in the Old Testament. 
But then he's also going to say, as we continue on, concerning his son who has descended from David according to the flesh, he's going to say all of those promises of the Old Testament that were found in the law of the Old Testament, they are now embodied in the person of Jesus. Yes, there's all these promises of the Old Testament, but now it's changed because Jesus has come. Jesus is the promised man, the one who has been descended from Jesus. He is the one who put on flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's descended from David, even as we looked at Psalm 89 today. The reminder that there is a Davidic covenant that Jesus sits on the throne of David. He continues on. He's declared to be the son of God in the power according to the Spirit, that he's declared to be the Son of God, reminding, reminding them that even God himself said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is the Son of God. In power according to the Spirit, by holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, Jesus, this man who came from heaven, had no Death had no power over him. That though he was crucified and put into the grave, death had no power over him. And in his perfect holiness, he was resurrected from the dead. He says, Jesus, Jesus was promised. Jesus came from heaven. Jesus became man. Jesus was confirmed by the Father. Jesus was ratified by the resurrection. He is our Hope in the gospel, Paul says right here in his introduction. He says this is about Jesus, but then in verse 5 he turns to you and I, or at least to to the believers in Rome. He says it's through that hope of the gospel, that hope in Jesus, through whom we have received grace, not what we've deserved, but in mercy we have been given grace through Jesus and apostleship and apostleship to bring about that we have been called by God we have been given a directive to bring about something he says we've been directed we've been given apostleship to bring about obedience of faith that we might act that we might obey that we might obey through the hope through the faith that we have. Why? For the sake of his name, he says. All of these things are not for us, but for his name, for his glory, for his renown, for the name of Jesus among all the nations. It's the only hope that we have for all of the world, including to you who are called to belong to Jesus. Even those of you in Rome, he says, who I have, who I have never met, who I am, have yet to come to, who I long to come to, to those of you in Rome, you are loved by God and you are called to be saints. So grace and peace to you. What an introduction he gives. What an introduction. He goes on in verses 8 through 14, you saw there, he, he, says, he says, I have wanted to come to you. I, I remember you in my prayers. I have wanted to, to come and to see you and to, and to be strengthened by you. But I want, I want you to strengthen me and I want to strengthen you, he says. I want all of that to happen, he says in verse 15, so that I can come to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. 
so I can come and preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And then he gives his thesis statement for the whole book right here in verses 16 and 17. He says, I want to come to preach the gospel for I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation. Jesus is our only hope. It's the power of God for salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Over and over in this letter to the Romans, Paul reminds us that the gospel is for those who trust in Jesus. First to the Jew, but also to the Greek. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Again and again and again, he'll point to this, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. That there's unity, there needs to be unity in the church. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God Paul never shies away from righteousness. Over and over, he talks about righteousness. Next week, as we look at these first few chapters together in one argument from Paul, he's going to talk about righteousness. That will be his theme. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith because it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our hope, Paul says in this letter, our hope in the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The righteousness that comes from God is for those who have faith. So as we close this morning, as the worship team comes, the questions that I think we get from this thesis statement from Paul is how can we know? How can we know this faith? How can we have this righteousness that he talks about here? How can we experience the power and how can we see the salvation that comes in the midst of this thesis statement? How can we be saved really is the question. And Paul spells it out clearly in the midst of this letter. There's a crisp and there's a clear teaching in these first three or four chapters of Paul declaring and proclaiming the hope that we have, our need for a savior and the hope that we have that we find in Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll join us for these next couple of weeks as we try to give this broad overview picture of what this letter looks like, but I hope too that you'll rejoice in the details of it, in the hope that comes through Jesus. Stand with me this morning as we sing together. Grace and peace, oh, how can this be for lawbreakers and thieves, for the worthless, the Death for all 
eternity without hope, without rest. Oh, what an amazing mystery, what an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. chapter 15 at the close, towards the close of his letter, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.